Hi, I'm John Atak. I'm Ursula Wake and this is Lyrical Works. Today we're going to be reading um, just four pieces, um, quite long pieces, from um, old epic poems, um, a selection of. Um, we've got um, the Mahabharata, we've got the Odyssey, Parsifal and the Edda. So, over to you, John. Yeah, so we'll start. We're going to read out the whole of the Mahabharata, <laughs> which is uh, 15 times longer than the Bible, mm, in mm. 10 minutes. Um, this is, is uh, the Bhagavad Gita, which is included in the Mahabharata, which is a, a collection of poems of a religious nature, part of the Hindu religion, which go back... Um, to before Buddhist times, that much we can be sure of because there are no reference to Buddhism, but beyond that, it, it's hard to date. Um, the, I mean, it says here um, that it, the Mahabharata is in fact the longest poem in the world, mm. Mm. Uh, about 30 times as long as Paradise Lost and about 140 times as long as the Bhagavad Gita, which is part of it. Mm. So we probably can't manage the whole of it. Um, the, the translation I have is the Penguin um, Juan Mascaro, um, which is a lovely translation, um, but it does here, and this confused me a little, there is no doubt that the war described in the Mahabharata is not symbolic and that it may even be based on historical fact. <laughs> Make of that what you will. So that's good to know. And he says the Bhagavad Gita is like a little shrine in a vast temple, the vast temple being the Mahabharata. Mm, okay. So That's quite a nice way to put it. Isn't it? It's, it's sweet. Um, we find ourselves um, on the battlefield and, and what has happened is a rift within a family. And so the uh, Arjuna, who is the hero of the Bhagavad Gita, is on the battlefield leading one side and he's a little perplexed that he's going to be killing his own relatives on the other side. And his charioteer is the god Krishna, luckily for him. Mm -hmm. And um, so he takes advice from Krishna. So I'm going to read a relatively short part of what is a relatively short book. In, in, indeed, this book is, is very important historically um, because it is a central scripture for many groups. Mm. So, for example, the... Um, International Society for Krishna Consciousness, or ISKCON, mm -hmm. um, founded by Prabhupada uh, and followed by George Harrison, among other people, and commonly known as the Krishnas, this is their central text. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for other bhakti yoga or devotional yoga, worshipping forms of yoga, um, that this is they will worship Krishna essentially by reading this text above all others. So, we have uh, Dhritarashtra, who introduces this, whoever he is, by saying, On the field of truth, on the battlefield of life, what came to pass, Sanjaya, when my sons and their warriors faced those of my brother, Pandu? And the response is, is to that question. Um, so, I have marked a few passages here. So uh, Arjuna is talking to his um, charioteer, Krishna, and he says, I see forebodings of evil, Krishna. 
I cannot foresee any glory if I kill my own kinsmen in the sacrifice of battle. Facing us in the field of battle are teachers, fathers and sons, grandsons, grandfathers, wives' brothers, mothers' brothers and fathers of wives. These I do not wish to slay, even if I myself am slain, not even for the kingdom of the three worlds, how much less for a kingdom of the earth. Um, O day of darkness, what evil spirit moved our minds when for the sake of an earthly kingdom we came to this field of battle, ready to kill our own people. And Sanjaya, who is reciting the Gita, says, Thus spake Arjuna in the field of battle, and letting fall his bow and arrows, he sank down in his chariot, his soul overcome by grief and despair. And Krishna responds, Thy tears are for those beyond tears, and are thy words words of wisdom? The wise grieve not for those who live, and they grieve not for those who die, for life and death shall pass away. Because we have all been for all time, I and thou and those kings of men, and we all shall be for all time, we all live forever and ever. The unreal never is, the real never is not. The truth indeed has been seen by those who can see the truth. Interwoven in his creation, the spirit is beyond destruction. No one can bring an end to the spirit, which is everlasting. If any man thinks he slays, and if another thinks he is slain, neither knows the ways of truth. The eternal in man cannot kill, the eternal in man cannot die. As a man leaves an old garment, and puts on one that is new, the spirit leaves his mortal body and then puts on one that is new. Beyond the power of sword and fire, beyond the power of waters and winds, the spirit is everlasting, omnipresent, never changing, never moving, ever one. And this is fairly similar to the doctrine that was taught in Japan, called Soldier Zen, during the early part of the 20th century, where Basically, soldiers were told, you are empty, your opponent is empty, so if you kill them, you have only emptied emptiness. And I must say that I consider this a perfidious doctrine. Mm. But I think, as with all mystical teachings, it should not be taken as a, this is the truth and I must mm. accept it. Mm. It should be taken as this is a matter for discussion. Mm. And in discussion, I would most certainly oppose what's, what's just been said. Mm. Mm. All life is precious. That's mm. my, my perception. Yeah, absolutely. So over, so, over to you. So the next one is um, perhaps doesn't need much of an introduction, but I'm going to introduce it anyway. Yes. So it's the Odyssey which we um, always name as having been written by somebody called Homer, as well as the Iliad, which came before it. Um, it perhaps was not written um, by one person and, of course, started as um, something compiled to be told, not to be read. So the likelihood is that it um, was developed and consolidated over several tellings, many tellings, and became something that was then written down and obviously I'm going to be reading the translation one of the translations of it um, so it dates back to um, 
I've just got to have a look at it because I wrote it down and I couldn't remember. Yeah, so it dates probably from um, the 8th century BCE. Um, and so as I say, it follows on from the Iliad. Um, the Iliad is about the Trojan War, which is something we know happened. Um, but obviously there are a lot of things um, that are made up, particularly in the bit that I'm going to be reading. So the Odyssey, which follows on from the Iliad, is about Odysseus or Ulysses, depending, um, travelling home from the Trojan War, where he had been one of the major figures, he had been part of the the um, Trojan horse, etc. Um, coming home a military hero, takes him 10 years to get home, um, partly because of all the things that befell him as he came, as he went along, um, and partly because of spending eight years with Calypso, the goddess, possibly um, against his will, possibly not. Um, I quite like the idea that um, he got held up for eight years alone on an island with a beautiful goddess, having nothing to do but um, let her have her wicked way with him. And, and he couldn't leave, just couldn't leave for eight years. Oh, oh it's a tough I, I know the feeling, what can I say? <laughs> it's a tough life, Odysseus. Oh, yeah, um, but apparently she did. She was holding him prisoner, this is what we're told, and um, and she was really angry at the idea that she was not allowed to have um, take somebody as a husband where other gods were allowed to do whatever they want. Zeus famously would transform himself into a creature and... Um, or a shower of gold. Or a shower of gold, indeed, yes. <laughs> um, so, the language in the original Greek is is straightforward. It's straightforward language. Um, and it was written in metre with some rhythm, but it didn't. the original Greek doesn't rhyme. Um, because sometimes people sort of feel that in an oral tradition where you're telling something and retelling something, that rhyme is inevitably going to be part of what's happening to help you remember it. But rhythms happen and set phrases um, come about, repeated phrases, ways of describing somebody, the rosy-fingered dawn, wise Penelope, etc. Wine, um, wine doxy. Yeah, absolutely. So there are certain um, strategies for helping remember, but rhyme... Um, in the original Greek is not one of them, and nor is it in the um, the translation that I'm going to be using. Um, so, I think that's all I'm, I'm going to say. So, I'm going to be reading um, the piece where Odysseus is um, passing the sirens and Scylla and Charybdis. He's been told by the goddess Circe how to do this safely. Um, I remember being taught that it was a sign of how wise Odysseus was and what a fantastic military strategist he was, that he worked all these things out for himself. But in the, the Odyssey itself, it says that Circe told him, so there you go. He was wise to listen to Circe. It, that's, that's the way in which he was wise, yes. Good point. Perhaps that's exactly what was meant. So the piece I'm going to read is um, where Odysseus... Um, passes the sirens and goes between Scylla and Charybdis and he's been told by the goddess Circe how to do this. She's given him um, top tips. And so 
for those either as a reminder or for those of you who aren't aware she advises him that in order to safely get past the sirens who will be singing their song and luring the sailors to the rocks that keep rowing keep rowing but if he wants to listen to the song which he's very curious about that he should get his sailors to tie him to the mast and that um, they should all have beeswax in their ears so they do not get lured by the sirens, they keep rowing in the right direction, but that he can satisfy his curiosity. Um, and that she also says that if he tries to get them to untie him, that he should that um, before they set off, he should tell them that they should then put wax in his ears and they should bind him even tighter. When um, Odysseus is due to go between Scylla and Charybdis, which is a stretch of the sea, where on the one hand there is Scylla, a monster living in a rock, um, a cave just above the sea, um, who could eat and devour, uh, a many-headed monster who could eat and devour many of the sailors. On the other hand, if you avoid that and sail away from that, he might go too close to Charybdis, the whirlpool, where the entire ship will go down. So his advice, given to him by Circe, is to go a little bit closer to the rock where Scylla is, because it's better to lose just a few of his men than the whole ship go down, which I guess is fair enough. So... This is the piece. We made good progress and had just come within call of the shore when the sirens became aware that a ship was bearing down upon them and broke into their high clear song. Draw near, illustrious Odysseus, man of many tales, great glory of the Achaeans, and bring your ship to rest so that you may hear our voices. No seaman ever sailed his black ship past this spot without listening to the honey-sweet tones that flow from our lips. And no one who has listened has not been delighted and gone on his way a wiser man. For we know all that the Argives and Trojans suffered on the broad plain of Troy by the will of the gods. And we know whatever happens on this fruitful earth. This was the sweet song the sirens sang, and my heart was filled with such a longing to listen that I ordered my men to set me free, gesturing with my eyebrows. But they swung forward over their oars and rowed ahead, while Perimedes and Eurylochus jumped up, tightened my ropes and added more. However, when they had rowed past the sirens and we could no longer hear the sound and the words of their song, my good companions were quick to clear their ears of the wax I had used to stop them and to free me from the ropes that bound me. We had no sooner put this island behind us than I saw a cloud of spume ahead and a raging surf and heard the thunder of the breakers. My men were so terrified that the oars all dropped from their grasp and fell with a splash onto the sea. And the ship herself, now that the hands that had pulled the smooth blades were idle, was brought to a standstill. I went up and down the ship, stood by each man, and encouraged them with soothing words. My friends, I said, we are men who have met trouble before. 
and this trouble is no worse than when the Cyclops used his brutal strength to imprison us in his cave. Yet my courage, strategy and intelligence found a way out for us, even from there, and I am sure that this too will be a memory for us one day. So now, let us all agree to do exactly as I say. Oarsmen, stay at your oars, striking hard with your blades through the deep swell, in the hope that Zeus allows us to escape disaster and come out of this alive. Helmsman, your orders are these. Fix them in your mind, for the good ship's steering oar is in your control. Give a wide berth to that foaming surf and hug these cliffs, or before you can stop her, the ship may take us over there and will be wrecked. The crew obeyed me immediately. I did not mention the inescapable horror of Scylla, fearing that in their panic my men might stop rowing and huddle below decks. But now I allowed myself to forget Circe's irksome instruction not to arm myself in any way. I put my famous armour on, seized a couple of long spears and took my stand on the forecastle deck hoping from there to get the first view of Scylla the monster of the rocks, who was preparing disaster for my crew. But I could not catch a glimpse of her anywhere, though I searched the sombre face of the cliff in every part until my eyes were tired. Thus we sailed up the straits, wailing in terror, for on the one side we had Scylla, and on the other the awesome Charybdis sucked down the salt water in her dreadful way. When she vomited it up, she was stirred to her depths and seethed over like a cauldron on a blazing fire. And the spray she flung up rained down on the tops of the crags at either side. When she swallowed the salt water down, the whole interior of her vortex was exposed. The rocks re-echoed to her fearful roar and the dark blue sands of the seabed were exposed. My men turned pale with terror, and now, while all eyes were on Charybdis as the quarter from which we looked for disaster, Scylla snatched out of my ship the six strongest and ablest men. Glancing towards my ship, looking for my comrades, I saw their arms and legs dangling high in the air above my head. Odysseus, they called out to me in their anguish, but it was the last time they used my name. For like an angler on a jutting point, who casts his bait to lure the little fishes below, dangles his long rod with its line protected by an oxhorn pipe, gets a bite and whips his struggling catch to land, Scylla had whisked my comrades, struggling, up to the rocks. There she devoured them at her own door, shrieking and stretching out their hands to me, in their last desperate throes. In all I have gone through, as I explored the pathways of the seas, I have never had to witness a more pitiable sight than that. It's not my idea of a, an evening out, I must say. No. It's well, no, no. You think you're going out for a little row on the on a little lake? No. There you go. Okay. Okay. Ooh. So back to you again. Back to me again. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> for a long time, managed to avoid the Arthurian legends. 
to the extent you can in our culture. And it was only on reading Joseph Campbell when I was in my 40s that I became fascinated by these stories which uh, wound up with the idea of chivalry, the great transformation that happened in European society where the kind of thuggery of the uh, Norman and Angevin courts, um, indeed of all the European courts, who were pretty much intent the aristocracy on um, killing people, as many people as they could, they suddenly got this idea which, which came to them from Muslim countries mm-hmm. about washing and being nice to ladies and <coughs> this kind of thing, which is called chivalry. Mm-hmm. Um, and a large part of that is comes with these stories which have some kind of origin in a Romano-Britain um, chieftain who fought off the Anglo-Saxons or Jutes to try and maintain the Christian culture against the pagan invasion. We know nothing about him. Um, there's The first reference to him is in about the 9th century, several centuries after mm-hmm. he lived. Then we have the chronicler Geoffrey of Monmouth, who starts telling some stories. Those stories are picked up by Chrétien de Troyes, who's in the court of Marie de Champagne, who's the daughter of Henry II and the sister of Richard the Lionheart. And these stories just, they go everywhere. They're um, retold again by Thomas Mallory in the 15th century and Mordatha, the death of Arthur. They're picked up again in the 19th century by uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson, who's a friend of Queen Victoria's, of course, and he and his mates all dress up and have a round table. And um, He writes a quite stirring um, series of poems mm. about this. Mm. Um, in the 20th century, we see them in again coming through in the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, this mythology that caught the imagination of millions, um, the idea that somehow Jesus had had children and one of them had become the Merovingian king of France and so on and so forth. Mm. Total fake. The guy who forged the documents has on film talked about how he exactly how he did it. But that didn't stop Dan Brown from some <laughs> 40 million copies of the Da Vinci Code, which still persists with this idea of the Holy Grail. Mm. Just in simple terms, the, the basis for the text of the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail is the idea that if you take the words San Graal, Holy Grail, and you take the G from the Graal and move it over to the San, you get Sang Graal, the Blood Royal. Now, the bit they didn't get to is you have to get to 14th century French before this is possible. So trying to mm, take this back mm. to the time of Jesus is, is a ridiculous folly, but still sold 40 million copies for Dan Brown. For me, the essential story is the actual discovery of the Grail. And that is the story of Parsifal or Percival or Parsifal or whichever way we go. It's written down by Chrétien de Troyes. And what we have is we have the, the glorious, glamorous court of King Arthur, all of these chivalrous nobles. And we have this country bumpkin, Parsifal, whose mother has outfitted him in a kind of pretend armour and he's riding on a donkey and he's going to join the court of, of Arthur. And along the way, He meets the Red Knight, challenges him to a duel, defeats him, and is able to take his wonderful charger and his lovely armour, ride down into the court of Arthur, and be told that he can go and seek the Grail. So off he goes to quite a number of adventures, and he comes upon 
the court of the Fisher King, and he, which again, you know, we even have a movie called The Fisher mm, King, which mm. actually doesn't really steer close to the story at all. The Red Knight appears at the end rather than the beginning, and all sorts of things. But what a wonderful film it is! Mm. A film about redemption, which in, indeed is what the Grail story is about. Mm. I mean, the Grail itself changed its character so that in modern times the Glastonbury tall myth, the Tintagel myth, you have this idea that it's the cup into which the blood of Jesus flowed from the cross. Well, in the early Grail stories, you won't find that. That's much later. Mm. The Grail in this story, which is written somewhere about 1210, Mm -hmm. um, so a dozen years after the death of Richard the Lionheart, um, by a warrior, a man who's not known as a poet, Wolfram von Eschenbach. Um, in this story, the Grail is actually a dish, which is uh, it, gradalis is the word used for a, a, an oval dish upon which fish would normally be put to be served. So, in the Holy okay. Grail, a bit different. Um, he finds the court of the Fisher King. He's invited in, and there it's all of his great pageantry and hundreds of people, and he sees. The suffering Fisher King, who, who has a terrible wound in his thigh, and he sees them bring in the lance that has caused the wound and touch it to the wound, and he gets a brief period of remission from the pain. And he enjoys the revels of the night, and in the morning when he wakes up, there's nobody there. He's in a completely empty castle. It's as if it's never happened. He then finds the wise man who, who says, oh, well, you only ever get one chance. And what you're meant to do is ask, how did you get the wound? Now, because his mum had taught him to be polite and not ask personal questions, he'd not thought to do that. But he did get the second chance. And here we have him, we have a brief description of the Fish King and Fortas, and we will jump through that to the actual finding of the Grail. Um, So we start here. Anfortas was abandoned to the pain of his wound, suffering such agony that knights and maidens both heard his frequent cries and saw the doleful glances he gave them with his eyes. His wound was beyond all cure. There was nothing they could do for him. Nevertheless, the story says true help was now on its way to him. They took hold of heartfelt grief. When sharp and bitter anguish inflicted severe discomfort on Anfortas, they sweetened the air for him to kill the stench of his wound. Then we find um, Parsifal and Fierfiz, um, who is his companion. Now, this this is an interesting story. Fierfiz is, is, is a man who is a Muslim and uh, he's the boon companion of Parsifal and he has both black and white skin. He is mottled. And this in turn inspires this fantastic film, I've got it right here, The Prince's Quest by Michel Ocelot, which I absolutely recommend. It's beautiful. Mm. Um, So many stories have have come from this. They were riding towards an outpost when a whole force of well-mounted Templars in full armour galloped up. But these were well-versed enough to see from the escort that joy was coming their way. Seeing all the turtle doves gleaming on Kundry's habit, the commander of the squadron said, Our trouble is over. What we have been longing for ever since we were ensnared by sorrow is approaching us under the sign of the grail. Rein in, 
great happiness is on its way to us. And let me put in at this, this point that also one of the most influential poems of the 20th century is based upon the Parsifal story, The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. So this has really had an incredible cultural effect, mm. this remarkable story. Um, so we move on a page or two. Parsifal wept. Tell me where the grail is, he said. If the goodness of God triumphs in me, this company here shall witness it. Thrice did he genuflect in its direction to the glory of the Trinity, praying that the affliction of this man of sorrows be taken from him. Then rising to his full height, he added, Dear uncle, what ails you? And this is the point at which Amphotas is cured of his wound. All he needed was somebody to ask, what's the trouble, mate? How did you get this? Tell us about it. And thus, you know, became one of the founders of psychotherapy. Um, and, you know, they all lived happily ever after. So this is the end of the, the great quest. Um, Joseph Campbell takes from this, he says that uh, mythology should not be viewed as history. It should be viewed as psychology. Mm. And I think with the Bhagavad Gita, with the Iliad and the Odyssey, with the Edda, with Parsifal, we can read these things and we can learn something from mm. them. As long as we don't think that we're watching a documentary film, mm. you know, that, that we're being told things that, that we are hopefully permitted to think about. And certainly the Grail stories you know, are, are fascinating stories and stories that it's so much... We learn from narratives. We, mm, we remember mm. things through narratives. Um, the great teachers teach through parables and stories. Um, and this is one of the supreme stories. It will be retold century after century, mm. you know, whether it's called Star Wars or whatever it is. <laughs> it's this search for the grail, the search for um, that which uh, heals the wounds mm, of mankind. Lovely. Mm. Mm. The, the last one we're going to have today is probably, I think, the, the least well-known of the ones that we've done. Um, my version here. Um, the Poetic Edda. I just think of it as the Edda because the word Edda kind of means poetics. So the Edda is a series of poems from the Norse Icelandic mythology. Um, and they tell of the creation of the world and um, of and how it will end with Ragnarok, the doom of the gods. Um, the content is similar to the Icelandic sagas that some people will be aware of, um, but those are written in prose um, and these are poems. Um, the edit was mostly recorded in the late 13th century and they give us some of the best evidence we have now of the religious beliefs, the pagan beliefs um, and ethics, heroic ethics of um, Scandinavia and Iceland before the conversion to Christianity. Um, and the conversion to Christianity happened around 1000 AD. Um, it's not a coherent collection. Some parts seem to be from Iceland, some parts seem to be from Norway, um, and they don't give a coherent idea of the pagan beliefs. And the likelihood is that nobody necessarily had one, there wasn't necessarily a coherent belief 
that people, different groups of people, adhered to different kinds of belief, um, especially because it wasn't a monotheistic um, thing. But this has, despite it being relatively obscure, it's had a huge cultural influence. Um, I think, and the bit that I'm going to read out, um, some of the names, I think anybody who has read Tolkien, listen out for the names of the dwarves, you will recognise that. And he very, he explicitly um, looked to this for ideas, um, not just the language and the names and so on, but um, ideas, the kinds of creatures that we come across, etc. So as well as um, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, his Narnia books um, lean on this. Um, the Thor and Loki come into, is it, it's either Marvel or something. I, I know certain people linked to me who will, if they see this, will laugh at yet again mum forgetting where people these people come from is it dc is it marvel (laughs) i don't know makes no difference to me but some you some people will know and it will matter to you and they're people who call you mum yeah (laughs) that's That's right yeah bit of a clue um but the, the the comics and the films um obviously um wagner's operas um game of thrones um, one very specific, apart from some of the creatures, especially the ones that live north of the wall in Game of Thrones, the, the giants and so on, um, the idea, there was the phrase, repeated phrase, winter is coming. And the, unen- the unending winter is what will happen before Ragnarok, before the end of the world. So, um, yeah, George R.R. R. Martin also used um, this. Um, I really enjoy a lot of this but the piece I'm going to read is the opening and it's the um, called The Seeress's Prophecy so um, and this dates back earlier than a lot of it it dates to the late 10th century and the seeress or the oracle I guess um, Voluspa um, she can remember back before the world began and can see as far ahead as the end of the world, as Ragnarok. And Odin, king of the gods, wants to know what the future holds, and so she gives him her reply, and I'm going to read the beginning of it. Um, Hearing I ask from all the tribes, greater and lesser, the offspring of Heimdall, Father of the slain, you wished me well to declare living beings' ancient stories, those I remember from furthest back. I remember giants born early in time, those nurtured me long ago. I remember nine worlds. I remember nine giant women, the mighty measuring tree below the earth. Early in time, Emir made his settlement, There was no sand, nor sea, nor cool waves. Earth was nowhere, nor the sky above. A void of yawning chaos. Grass was there nowhere. Before the sons of Bor brought up the land surface. Those who shaped glorious Midgard. The sun shone from the south on the stone hall. Then the ground was grown over with the green leek. From the south, sun, companion of the moon, threw her right hand round the sky's edge, 
Sun did not know where she had her hall. The stars did not know where they had their stations. The moon did not know what might he had. Then all the powers went to the thrones of fate, the sacrosanct gods, and considered this. To night and her children they gave names, morning they named and midday, afternoon and evening to reckon up in years. The Azir met on Idaval plain, high they built, built altars and temples. They set up their forges, smithed precious things, shaped tongs and handmade tools. They played checkers in the meadow, they were merry, they did not lack for gold at all, until three ogre girls came, all powerful women, out of giant land. Then all the powers went to the thrones of fate, the sacrosanct gods, and considered this. Who should create the lord of the dwarves out of Brimir's blood and from Blaine's limbs? There, Motsugnir became most famous of all dwarves, and Durin next. Many man-like figures the dwarves made, out of the earth as Durin recounted. New moon and dark of moon, north and south, east and west, master thief, Dvalin, Bivor, Bavor, Bombor and Nuri, An and Anoa, great-grandfather and Meadwolf, Lico and Staffelf, Windelf and Thrain, Known and Thorin, Thraw, Colour and Wise, Corpse and New Advice. Now I have rightly, Regin and Council Clever, reckoned up the dwarves. Philly and Killy, Foundling and Nali, Haft and Vili, Hanar and Sphere, Fra and Hornborer, Freig and Seapool, Lonefield, Iari, Oakenshield. Time it is to tally up the dwarves in Dvalin's troop, for the children of men to trace them back to Lofar, those who sought out Fra's Hallstone, the dwelling of Lonefield on Eurovillier. There were Draupnor and Drogthrasia, grey hair, mound river, lee plain, glow, skirvir, virvir, scarfid, and great grandfather. Elf and Ingvi, Oakenshield. Fiala and Frosty, Finn and Ginnar, they'll be remembered while the world endures, the long list of ancestors going back to Lofar. Until three gods, strong and loving, came out from that company. They found on land capable of little, ash and embler, lacking in fate. Breath they had not, spirit they had not, blood nor bearing nor flesh complexions. Breath gave Odin, spirit gave Henia, blood gave Lodor and fresh complexions. An ash I know that stands, Yggdrasil it's called, a tall tree drenched with shining loam. From there come the dews which fall in the valley. Green it stands always over Erd's well. From there come girls, knowing a great deal, three from the lake standing under the tree, Erd, one is called, Verdandi, another, they carved on a wooden slip, Skuld, the third. They laid down laws, they chose lives for the son of men, the fates of men. She remembers the first war in the world, when they stuck Gulveig with spears, and in the High Ones' hall they burned her. Three times they burned her, 
Three times she was reborn, over and over, yet she lived still. Bright one, they called her, wherever she come, came to houses, the seer with pleasing prophecies, she practised spirit magic. She knew said, said she performed as she liked. She was always a wicked woman's favourite. Then all the powers went to the thrones of fate, the sacrosanct gods, and considered this. Whether the Ezir should yield the tribute, or whether all the gods should share sacrificial feasts. Odin hurled a spear, sped it into the host. That was war still, the first in the world. The wooden rampart of the Ezir's stronghold was wrecked. The Vanir, with a war spell, kept on trampling the plain. Then all the powers went to the thrones of fate, the sacrosanct gods, and considered this. Which people had troubled the air with treachery, or given odds girl to the giant race? Thor alone struck a blow there, swollen with rage. He seldom sits still when he hears such a thing. The oaths broke apart, words and promises, all the solemn pledges which had passed between them. She knows that Heimdall's hearing is hidden under the bright-grown sacred tree. She sees flowing down the loam-filled flood from father of the slain's pledge. Do you want to know more? And what? Alone she sat outside when the old man came, the terrible one of the Azir, and he looked in her eyes. Why do you question me? Why do you test me? I know all about it, Odin, where you hid your eye in Mimir's famous well. Mimir drinks mead every morning from father of the slain's pledge. Do you want to know more? And what? And if you want to know more, and what? I I recommend, I, I was thinking when I was um, preparing this, that if you are a fan of Tolkien in particular, and there is relatively little to read and reread, and if your copies of The Hobbit and Lord of the, Real, the, Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion are um, battered and bruised and falling apart, you could do worse than trying this, um, because there is so much that he took from from this in terms of um, content and the mythology. Um, yeah. And he speaks about that in the appendix to the last book mm. of The Lord of the Rings, yeah. Yeah. at great length. He was a professor at Oxford of mercy in English, mm. English from the ninth century, around the ninth, tenth centuries. And so he read the Edda in its original language, uh, he was a great linguist. He was one of the great linguists of his time um, and formed a club with C.S. Lewis and others. Mm, and mm. they sat around talking about these stories. And, and in the end, these are very powerful stories. Yes. Um, which it, Tolkien was a devout Catholic who suffered from terrible insomnia. And so at night he set about creating the language of the elves and out mm. of this grew the, the whole set of stories okay. over the years um, and and we are there with, with, with this idea of the story um, Neil Gaiman um, who's mm. quite rightly a very popular writer has written a, a collection of the Norse stories and as, as you say they have been different from one tribe to another because the stories spread out like tributaries 
from an original story mm, and, and mm. another poet will come along you know, Shakespeare did there's no original story in Shakespeare every one of his stories is some already existed mm. King Leo in fact was first performed only about six months before he grabbed hold of it and rewrote it now mm. it says something that we don't remember the original version yeah. who's going to perform mm. that a great storyteller comes along and says oh you know oh can we have a sword uh, mm, coming mm. out of a lake with some damp mm. bint, as Monty Python put it, mm. and Excalibur enters mm. the Arthurian stories, but it doesn't enter them until the 15th century. There's no Excalibur mm. in the original stories, mm. but they're embellished and retold mm. and they become mm. better. Um, Neil Gaiman's Norsemiths is, is a very good way of pulling the stories together in the same way that Stephen Fry with Mythos mm. takes the Greek stories. I remember with tremendous fondness being in Miss Harrison's class when I was about eight years old. And on a Friday afternoon, she'd say, mm -hmm. right, we, today we're now at story time. And she would tell one of the Greek myths or one mm -hmm. of the, the Norse myths. And they're very valuable. They're, they're you know, the stories of, say, Loki, um, mm -hmm. the horrible little character. <laughs> um, they're interesting ways of looking at life and at human character and human wisdom. And I think it's right to... To say that every tradition, the say the African tradition, the Australian Aborigine tradition, the North American um, mm. peoples, they have these wonderful stories, which are tutelary. They they teach us something. Absolutely, we, we were spoilt for choice, oh, frankly, weren't we? With yeah. with this, like with with every other episode that we're doing, we're just spoilt for choice mm. with what to choose, and indeed, every every um, culture has its um, creation myths, have it, has its hero myths, has its um, stories that tell us something about ways of behaving mm. and wisdom and stupidity and good and evil. And then we'll, and, and we love those Stanley stories because... <laughs> we get the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> I can remember reading the Thor comics as a, as a kid and being delighted by them. So was it Marvel or was it DC? I, I don't remember. Isn't that terrible? <gasps> you don't remember? It's not just me, kids. Yeah. Um, it's in the They'll end. laugh at you now as well. Yeah, well, they can do. So well, I, I can take it. Um, but it, it, it is... You know, I, I can't underline it too much. That mm. the stories is what we want. And if you want to mm. teach somebody something, teach them stories. You know, mm. if you want to teach them chemistry, teach them about <laughs> Lavoisier and the lives of the chemists and how they made these amazing discoveries. You know, you were putting a little bird in a glass dome and mm. pumping all the air out, going, there you go, dead bird. Mm. This is what science is about. But somehow we remember better if, if mm. we're told an exciting story rather than a kind of, dull formula or something like that yeah and they're related to people hmm. and we pad them out no matter how little is in the original text or the original oral telling we can pad them out with people we already know hmm. or we we recognize we've come across and we kind of might imagine that loki is a particular person who lives down the road or whatever him. yeah we've all been to school with Loki <laughs> and thought <laughs> but um yeah and I think that helps us sort of relate them down um so relate wisdom sort of comes in the form of um yeah particular behavior in particular situations with people that we can imagine and they're great and I think from um from the perspective 
from a perspective now where you can almost choose. Obviously, we grow up in whatever culture we grow up in. But now there is such a choice with regard to you can choose what you like aesthetically. So some people enjoy the North Norse aesthetic. If you like ravens, go for the Norse mythology. And if you think, oh, actually, it's far more relaxing to be on the Ionian Sea, <laughs> go for the Odyssey and, and the Iliad and what have you in the Aeneid and, and so on. But um, there's always something worth worth going back to, definitely. And and I think very right that the, the visual aesthetic, I mean, the cover of you have here, as the Edda mm. shows, Viking art, um, looking at the Celtic myths, we could have gone to the Mabinogion. Mm, and again, yeah. you have this very rich and developed culture. Um, looking at Buddhist culture, Hindu culture, wherever you go. Mm. I, I spent quite some time reading Cherokee mythology because I wanted to incorporate it into a novel, um, a novel, Voodoo Child's Slight Return. And it was fascinating to see, yes, you know, they've got a little spider that starts the world and how that all mm. happens, that trying to make sense of the world mm. um, and lay down a teaching for future generations. Again, as Joseph Campbell said, the myths are very important and should be retold in every generation. Mm. You know, new stories will come out of them. Star Wars came out of his work. Um, the uh, Mad Max films mm. come out of that. And indeed, ever since... Star Wars in Hollywood, you're expected to know the hero journey and, mm, and mm. conform your script there too, which is not necessarily a good idea. But it gives you a, a template and a way of um, helping, you know, bringing people into a story. And, and it can make of a, a story something. You know, Star Wars, look at the kind of cult of Star Wars that yeah. Um, yeah. I think 300,000 people uh, in was it the 1991 census in this country, claimed that mm. they were Jedi by religion. There yeah, weren't the any the Sith, though. The UK yeah. census. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jedi was named yeah. as the religion. It by diminished by 2011, I'm afraid. So, you know, the later films were not as religiously attractive somehow. But there we are. <laughs> on that note. Yeah, on that note. Thanks very much for your time. Yeah. I'm Take John Atak. I'm Ursula Wake. Bye. Thank you.